The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello and welcome back to The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, in our first episode of this new series, we look at so-called cancel culture. At what point should an artist's actions make us question the validity of their work? I talked to Eric Hatala Mates of Wellesley College, who's writing a book on immoral artists, about how useful the notion of cancelling may be. And with the art newspaper's correspondent Tom Seymour and the photographer and lecturer Lewis Bush, we explore the cases of Martin Parr and David Allen Harvey, two photographers whose activities have recently come under scrutiny. And we're continuing our series Work of the Week. This time, the artist Tavares Strachan talks about Robert Smithson's earthwork from 1970, The Spiral Jetty. Before all that, a reminder that you can catch up with the art newspaper's other podcast, A Brush With, four in-depth conversations that I had with artists about the art, books, music and more that have defined their life and work. The artists in Series 1 are Michael Armitage, Jenny Saville, Chantal Joffe and Rashid Johnson. You can subscribe to A Brush With on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you're listening now. And we've also launched a book club at the art newspaper with news, excerpts, interviews, live events and more. You can sign up to the monthly book club newsletter and indeed all of our newsletters at theartnewspaper.com. Click on the newsletter link at the top right of the page. Now, cancel culture is a term that's been banded about loosely over recent years, but what does it mean and what are its implications? Well, to try to unpack it, I spoke to Eric Hatala Mattes, an associate professor in the Department of Philosophy at Wellesley College in Massachusetts, who's writing a book on immoral artists. Eric, I wanted to begin by asking a general question. Is cancel culture even a useful term? That's a great question to start with. I think that cancel culture is an idea that we need to grapple with because of how ubiquitous it's become. Um, So, you know, if you read almost any publication, you're going to hear so much about cancel culture these days. But I think ultimately, when we try to sort of get under the surface and figure out exactly what cancel culture is, um, it becomes a pretty unuseful term because so many different uh, ways of approaching the immorality of artists get lumped in with cancel culture. Um, So, for instance... Um, There was a lot of discussion uh, in the past uh, year about uh, canceling the the artist Gauguin uh, and the New York Times ran, you know, a a big story. You know, is it time to cancel Gauguin? And there there was a lot of discussion about it. But then when you actually read the article, right, there wasn't anybody in the article who was critical of Gauguin who really wanted us to, you know, rip Gauguin off the walls or to stop looking at Gauguin or thinking about Gauguin. What they really wanted was just to, for everyone to take seriously, right, the morally bad things that Gauguin did, right? You know, abandoning his family, sexually exploiting Tahitian girls, uh, and the way in which um, some of his bad features sort of show up show up in his work. So uh, there's a danger, I think, in talking about cancel culture or just using the sort of general umbrella term cancel culture if it's going to obscure the more nuanced ways in which people are asking us to reckon with artistic immorality, not just saying, okay, you're done, erased, gone forever, right? But oftentimes just sort of taking seriously the fact that sometimes artists do terrible things. And that's something that we need to think about in relation to their work itself. And I think that's really something that's writ large in Gauguin's work, isn't it? You know, it's not like he's creating abstract paintings when he's in Tahiti. He's depicting his life there very graphically and it's writ large on the works that, you know, we can see the kind of life he is living. So it is in in no way an obfuscation of the content of the work to talk about what he's up to, right? Exactly. I mean, it almost seems bizarre to display these works without explicitly discussing right that context and how he's there and what he's doing and what's going on in the work right as if there was something you know dangerous about 
uh, talking frankly and seriously about aspects of his work that have um, you know an objectionable or or immoral character to them. Um, you know that there it's right there, like you say. Um, so yeah, I think that that's a case that makes it particularly strange to act as if there's something that's going to be wrong or or harmful about about thinking about these features. I mean, I think that you know the way in which it gets framed by some you know curators or, or museum uh, folks is that you know they worry about the work then being boycotted. Right? And it's not as if that you know never happens or nobody calls for that kind of a response. But I certainly wouldn't say that it's the norm. And I think that if um, you know museums and galleries were more proactive about taking seriously these aspects of artists' lives that people you know want to be reckoned with transparently, there would be less uh, you know motivation for the occasional call to boycott in the first place. You draw out a really interesting comparison, I think, between Gauguin and Caravaggio, who is an artist who also engaged in a very extreme form of morally dubious activity in the sense that he killed someone. Can you expand on that? Because I think that there's a very interesting distinction that you make between those two artists. Right. So, so Caravaggio murdered somebody purportedly in the course of trying to castrate him. Um, so, you know, that's pretty bad. Um, that's, that's, that's immoral behavior, right? Uh, and it's of a form that's, that's, you know, different in, in a number of ways from, from, from Gauguin's. Um, most, most, uh, markedly, I think, in that, um, although, you know, we would have a, a negative moral reaction to what Caravaggio has done, um, Caravaggio's act of murder doesn't really show up in his work as a lens through which we interpret the work. Um, so while you know, there's no reason to ignore it or sweep it under the rug, it has less obvious uh, aesthetic significance to our interpretation of Caravaggio. Whereas, uh, as we discussed earlier, right, Gauguin's work is emblematic of this certain, you know, Western white male gaze that involves the eroticization and exploitation of women of color. Uh, and so the things that are, um, you know, the things that, that Gauguin did in his life that we judge um, from a moral perspective are really integral to his work, right? And you see other artists then picking up aspects of that uh, of his work in that way and responding to them in their own art. So for instance, in Kahinda Wiley's series that is sort of grappling with, with Gauguin's legacy. And so, you know, one thing that's really important to see, I think, is that the immorality of an artist or some of the, the a bad thing that they've done can show up in their work in different ways and have different uh, aesthetic significance to how we, how we interpret that work. And I think, you know, a further thing worth mentioning is that um, it's important that we still you know, engage with and view the work of you know, morally questionable artists like Gauguin, because without without the ability to sort of have that direct confrontation with with the work, right, and you know, acknowledging the the sins of the artist, it makes it difficult to understand and appreciate the later work that is responding to and grappling with that legacy, right? How would you understand and appreciate Kahinda Wiley's work if you hadn't seen Gauguin, right? Um, so I think that there, there's an important way in which we need to think, on the one hand, transparently about the immoral actions of artists when confronting their work, but in a way that doesn't involve getting rid of that work, right, or censoring that work, because there's an important aspect of our aesthetic engagement with it uh, that is colored by its immorality and that is important for uh, moral progress even. You also cite... An, an example of a living artist who has literally had a form of cancellation in the form of Chuck Close, who was due to have this exhibition at the National Gallery of Art in Washington, but because of accusations of sexual harassment, he, which he denies, um, he, that that show was uh, indefinitely postponed. It certainly hasn't happened, and it was it was said to be postponed at the time. That is an example of a of, of a tangible cancellation. What do you make of that? So I think that actions like that can be um, really useful ways of responding to um, legitimate, credible charges uh, against artists. And I think that one way that it's productive to think about um, cases like that um, are is this, I think we can distinguish between engaging with an artist's work um, and honoring the artist, right? So honoring the artist 
Um, putting them forward on a pedestal as somebody to be admired right, is something that we often do in the arts. Um, and in the face of you know, serious accusations like those faced by Close, I think it's reasonable for galleries and museums to say, you know what, we don't want to honor this artist right now. Right? We have serious concerns about this artist's behavior. And I think you know, refraining from honoring in the, them in those ways is a good way of listening to their alleged victims and taking their charges seriously and communicating to the general public that we're not going to sweep allegations against artists under the rug just because they're famous or influential, that we are going to take them seriously. Now, I think that we can do that and sort of take those actions without simultaneously thinking that we then also need to call for the systematic removal of any work of Chuck Close by any museum or gallery, right? Because there are ways, as we've discussed, of engaging with a work right, that don't necessarily need to involve the kind of honoring of the artist, um, acting as if allegations of immorality against them don't matter, right? ignoring their victims. I think there are ways in which we can render these two things consistent. Right? Now, I do think that that's, hard, that's hardest to do when it comes to the visual arts, because the way in which we engage with, with the visual arts showing you know, works in museums and galleries feels like it's inherently honoring them. It's much more difficult, I think, than in, in literature, for instance, or, or film, where we can say, you know what, we're not going to give any awards or prizes to this particular artist anymore, but you know, if you've got a copy of their work, uh, you, know, you can read it. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, it's, it's a much harder distinction to, to draw in the visual arts, but I do think that it's, it's one that's worth pursuing. Um, I'm one thing I'm really intrigued about whole, the whole cancel culture thing is that in some ways by targeting individuals it allows institutions to not address the situation and we keep seeing this it the the blame falls on the individuals and it and it in some ways allows institutions to escape addressing their system systemic issues is that your perception or or do you think it it ultimately um, by focusing on individuals, it leads to systemic analysis. I am inclined to think that there's too much focus often on individuals rather than on on institutions. I think institutional change is really um, essential to addressing some of these issues that uh, with, with with artistic morality that we that we keep confronting. I do think that the focus on individuals um, as an aspect of cancel culture is understandable, though, because it feels like a response to institutional failure, right? So when institutions don't um, hold artists accountable, right, when they sweep their uh, behavior under the rug or don't take it seriously or ignore it, right, when there are consistent, you know, accusations against artists about their, their behavior, for instance, right, it's understandable that the public would say, you know, we're going to hold this artist accountable in the way that the institution uh, won't. I do think there are risks there. Um, so um, the philosopher uh, Olafemi Taiwo has written recently in the Boston Review about the problem of elite capture uh, in various contexts, including identity politics, where you know people in positions of power can sort of capitalize on the veneer of progressivism in order to market themselves in an admirable light without really changing much. And I think that this does happen in the context of the arts, or right? after there's um, you know, enough momentum surrounding a particular artist, an institution, whether it's you know, a television network or a gallery can say, like, oh, yeah, we're, you know, we're not going to you know, forget that guy. We're not going to show that person's work anymore. You know, we're going to completely cancel them. But then they don't actually change anything at the institution. Right. So they're not you know, making changes to make sure that their staff are more diverse. They're not making changes to ensure that, you know, when they work with artists, they're not going to um, continue to work with people who are credibly accused of predatory behavior, right? They, they don't make any changes at the, at the level that would prevent these things from happening in the future. Instead, they offer these particular individual sacrifices. So I do think that more emphasis on, on institutional change is, is really crucial to thinking about how to make changes to the art world that will um, provide uh, a better um, mechanism for confronting instances of immorality, whether it's in terms of you know predatory behavior or you know, racism, um, misogyny, or other um, uh, moral issues that arise. You draw a distinction 
between bigots and predators. And it seems to me from this discussion that in a way, predators are an easier form of moral problem to deal with than bigotry because as you say the the bigotry is 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 much more about a systemic problem than an individual predator is that is that your argument i think that's fair to say i think that you know with predators it is often easier to identify a particular victim of a particular you know predatory individual And so we're in a better position to say, hey, if we can do something to prevent this individual from exercising the power that they have to prey on others, right, which is often in the arts, a kind of social power or celebrity, then we can really make a difference in uh, preventing this individual from from preying on people in the way that they that they have. It's much harder to say that in the case of general bigotry, right, Um, Obviously, you know, all kinds of forms of bigotry, racism, homophobia, sexism, et cetera, have all kinds of victims, right? That's, that's for sure. But it's, it's harder to say, well, this particular artist is responsible for the victimization of this particular individual, right? So I think there's less that we can obviously do to prevent um, particular harm to particular individuals when it comes to grappling with bigotry as opposed to um, instances of, of predatory behavior. Um, but that's, that's, you know, just to say that it makes it all the more important that the response that we take to bigotry is of this institutional form, that we pursue these broader kinds of systemic uh, improvement uh, and um, reorganization in order to provide ways to address the more diffuse way in which instances of bigotry create victims, right, in, in contrast with uh, the more sort of one-on-one or individualized nature of predatory harm. Okay, well, Eric, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Eric Catala Mattis's book on immoral artists is published next year by Oxford University Press. And you can read some of Eric's writings at Apollo Magazine's website. In a moment, we'll discuss recent cancel culture debates around two photographers. But first, here are a few of the top stories on the art newspaper's website this week. The organisers of Art Basel have cancelled the fair's Miami Beach edition, scheduled to run from the 3rd to the 6th of December, amid ongoing concerns over the global coronavirus crisis. The fair's global director, Mark Spiegler, director in the Americas, Noah Horowitz, and director in Asia, Adeline Uwe, wrote in a joint letter sent to exhibitors that the impact of coronavirus, limitations and uncertainty about the staging of large-scale events, international travel restrictions and bans, as well as quarantine regulations within the United States and internationally, gave Art Basel no other option but to cancel the 2020 edition. The Tate, the Victorian Albert Museum and the Centre Pompidou have defended their partnerships with state-owned companies in China in the face of mounting criticism of the country's extensive human rights abuses. Christina Ruiz's detailed report explores the museum's lucrative deals in the context of growing evidence of the detention of Muslim Uyghur people in the Qingchang region, the crackdown on protesters in Hong Kong and pervasive state censorship. In an interview with the art newspaper, the artist Ai Weiwei says that if organisations do not question Chinese state power, they become complicit in it. And finally, Nancy Kenny reports that staff from the Louvre Museum and the Directorate General of Antiquities of Lebanon have begun overseeing work on a joint rehabilitation project at the National Museum of Beirut, which was heavily damaged in last month's explosion in the city's port area. The blast destroyed the museum's windows and doors and caused serious damage to the security system. Teams from the Louvre's departments of Near Eastern Antiquities and Architectural Heritage and Gardens have been assisting the Directorate General in mapping out a recovery plan. You can read these stories and much more at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS, which you can get from the App Store. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Launching the autumn season with upcoming sales in New York, Paris and London, Christie's 20th century sales celebrate the emergence of the defining modern art era to the cutting-edge contemporary art of today. Highlights across sale rooms include masterworks by Pollock and Noland, in addition to a superlative watercolour example by Cezanne leading the sales in New York. Discover the season's top works and collections and explore related features in advance of the highly anticipated sales beginning in October. 
The refresh schedule complements Christie's online only and private sales offerings. Bid and buy art at any time and from anywhere. Find out more on christies.com. Now, the world of photography has been shaken by two recent stories that have brought the culture around the discipline under scrutiny. Pressure built on the photographic agency Magnum after the photographer and writer Andy Day wrote that an image taken by the American photographer David Allen Harvey, part of a series titled Bangkok, Thailand Prostitutes, featured an almost naked, fully identifiable and allegedly pubescent woman in what appears to be a Bangkok brothel, apparently taken from the perspective of a client seated on a bed which the girl is approaching. Magnum used the keywords prostitute and girl 13 to 18 years in their description of the image. Magnum has pledged to immediately launch an in-depth internal review into their archive of more than a million images. Meanwhile, a cancel culture debate raged about another of Magnum's members, Martin Parr. He quit as the artistic director of the first Bristol Photo Festival after it emerged that he had promoted and edited a book which featured a racist spread of images. Mercedes Baptiste Halliday, a student at University College London, drove an 18-month protest against the book and Parr's involvement. I spoke about these stories to Tom Seymour, a correspondent at the art newspaper who specialises in photography, and Lewis Bush, a photographer who leads the MA Photojournalism and Documentary Photography course at the London College of Communication. Tom, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. And, and Lewis, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Lewis, in a piece on your website, you've questioned whether Magnum is really doing all it can in relation to the David Allen Harvey case, because there's a sort of partial erasure in the sense that the images have been taken down. But could Magnum have been doing more? Um, Yeah, absolutely. So I think in the case of David Allen Harvey, you have a, a photographer who basically more and more questions have been raised about the nature of the images he produces and and the kind of uh, you know the, the situations in which he's been as a photographer and one image in particular was uh, flagged up by quite a lot of people as very problematic because it basically appeared based on the content of the image and the way it was captioned or and tagged on the magnum site it appeared to show uh you know a victim of child sexual abuse which you know, in a lot of countries, including the UK, is illegal. So, you know, if if it proved to be the case, then essentially Magnum and David Allen Harvey would have been involved in, you know, a crime. It's still, again, an open question because they claim that it was a mistake and so on and so forth. Um, and yeah, so, I mean, Magnum's response so far has been an investigation and Harvey's been suspended, but actually not over that image, over something just separate from that which has been a, an accusation made against him by someone you know the issue with these people like Harvey is often actually that they're at the tip of the iceberg and actually what they represent the reason they're interesting and worth talking about is because they often represent much deeper kind of structural problems in both the organizations they belong to or the uh, the fields that they belong to and I mean I think certainly in terms of um, you know, Magnum, you can definitely make a criticism that uh, what Harvey's is alleged to have done is a kind of extreme version of stuff that actually a lot of Magnum photographers have done over the years, which is, um, you know, basically to take advantage of people in very vulnerable positions. The distinction with Harvey's work is he's done it in a way which is potentially criminal. And that's why it's obviously generated a lot of debate. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the concern often for me is that actually organisations uh especially ones that are very focused on their self-image as i would say magnum is um they move very quickly to distance themselves from these people or to uh kind of hide them and i think you know the way harvey has disappeared to a large extent from the magnum website is an example of that in order to protect their brand and their self-image uh but not in a way that actually learns any kind of uh, longer term lessons about you know how these things have happened and what can be done to kind of prevent them in the future in your piece about Magnum, you wrote very interestingly about this culture of its it, the prestige of Magnum and how this uh, self-image is is problematic about you know in terms of a critical overview of of how it behaves. Can you say more about that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a twofold problem, I and mean, one of one of the parts of the problem kind of really goes back to Magnum's formation and um, you know. 
I mean, it was created by a group of uh, incredible photographers, but at least one of whom certainly had a very strong reputation for kind of self-promotion and a very strong sense of his own brand. And I think that if you look at Magnum's history over the subsequent decades, you can see that traces of that creation remain. So the brand, the Magnum brand has always been quite an important aspect of it. And I mean, you know, certainly as a young photographer, I can only speak for myself, although I often hear this from students of mine and other people. As a young photographer, you know, Magnum was this kind of ideal to aspire to. And I think it, you know, very much it it creates that intentionally, that position of itself as the kind of the apex of the industry. Um, whether that's true or not is another question. But I mean, so and that so that's already a problem. But then I think what's interesting is in the last few years, uh, Magnum is obviously like a lot of photojournalism uh, agencies and organisations has been hit by the challenges. That there's less and less money available for you know commissioning for example original photojournalism and so um they've increasingly kind of diversified i suppose you could say um so you know they they basically created this kind of magnum um commercial branch and you know they've been they've been very proactive about in a way monetizing the brand in other ways so things like print sales education they've got some very kind of um from the sound of things at least judging by the fees uh, lucrative educational partnerships including i should say with the institution i teach for and i actually used to teach on one of those courses in the interests of transparency i should say i basically stopped because you know i was paid very little for it compared to the magnum photographers so i should just get that out there but i think so i think this kind of um, monetization has again has added to the importance of kind of protecting the brand that now it's not just about the reputation of the photographers you know and their association with magnum uh, but it's also actually about their financial kind of um, the, the brand's financial security that needs to be protected from these kinds of accusations. And that's one of the reasons, at least that I think, uh, we see these kinds of accusations being dealt in the way dealt with in the way they have been. I mean, it, it, does Magnum have any responsibility to anyone other themselves? I mean, it's a, it's a photographer run organisation. Do they have to publish anything of, of this investigation that they're doing as, as you know, they're not they're not the Tate or the Photographer's Gallery or another public institution. So why should they publish a report in which may well find out some very troubling things? Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting that I think there have been quite a few attempts by people to get access even to their code of conduct. So basically, after the, the they kind of started this diversification campaign, uh, I mean that financially, not in terms of membership, although they have also done that a bit, um, they introduced a code of conduct for Magnum photographers. And apparently that's what Harvey has been suspended over as, as his actions or his alleged actions are considered a breach of that code of conduct but incredibly magnum from everything i've read refused to release the code of conduct even which seems kind of incredible because you, you'd think the point of having a document like that is that it's public and transparent um so yeah i mean i think i think it whether they'll release the results of these findings are an interesting question i mean as you say i think there there's not very much anyone can do to force them apart from uh you know in terms of this kind of public pressure for greater transparency from them right so let's move on to talking about a member of the magnum family as it were uh martin parr and tom you've done a lot of reporting around a very particular incident relating to him which relates to a book so tell, tell, tell give us the context of that so in i think around 2017 a young um black woman from London, uh, was bought a book published by and edited by Martin Parr called London by, by an Italian photographer called Gian Burrettini. And in the middle of this book, there's a spread, so two images edited side by side, of a black woman working as a ticket inspector on the London Underground in the, in the late 1960s. And she sit, sat in a ticket booth um, on the London Underground stamping tickets and edited next to that image, that portrait is an image of a gorilla in, in a cage in London Zoo now she, as a result of seeing this spread in this book which is edited and has been you know, and was sort of heavily promoted by Martin Parr including giving a, a sort of talk about it at Photo London. I noticed in your piece he signed copies of this book 
Yeah, yeah. That I should mention that that he is keen to to sort of stress that the Italian publisher they tried to overreg how much he was involved in the actual publication of the book, and edited by Martin Parr was a sort of promotional uh, marketing exercise for them, and he actually. Um, is keen to claim that he didn't actually have that much oversight over the book. But she launched a campaign against Martin Parr, which included her going to his um, exhibition of the National Portrait Gallery at the time and writing to his foundation in Bristol and and was essentially ignored um, and actually dismissed um, by his staff at one point in a, in a pretty brutal way. And she, she carried on uh, on social media, mostly on Twitter, like, trying to to raise attention to this to this book and and increasingly more and more people who were interested in photoethics started to retweet her and started to engage with the with the sentiment and over the course of two or three years this sort of snowballed to the point where um the pressure on martin parr was so great that he he decided of his own accord to to resign as the artistic director of the inaugural bristol photography festival and he's also, uh, I should add, he has requested that the publishers destroy the original book, which is, is a bit of a can of worms to open up. And there's actually been a lot of uh, scrutiny about other books that he's lent his name to over the last few years, in particular a book by a Spanish photographer called, and I'm, I may mispronounce his name, but um, Jacques Salvans, called The Waiting Game, which is essentially images taken with a long lens camera of sex workers working in various parts of Spain. And the photographer posed as a surveyor wearing a high-vis jacket and took, the, took images of, of, of the sex workers from a long distance, so obviously without their consent. And Pa wrote an introduction to the book, basically like um, celebrating how, how this photographer was able to uh, take these images without, without the photographers without the women's consent and that has also caused a lot of controversy online and as i think it's fair to say very much damaged the reputation of a photographer who and i mean not until recently seemed very untouchable pretty much lewis what's your take on all this i mean i'm i find it very very difficult to understand how martin parr could have written something you know even if he is distancing himself how he could have written something for that book without seeing that image in you know the 21st century and not thinking it was problematic and not wanting to lend his name to it what's your take yeah i mean in terms of the the image spread i find it kind of incredible that anyone born or kind of alive in the last 60 years or more couldn't recognize that spread as problematic i mean there's a debate about the photographer's original intention with the spread but even so you know obviously one of the questions with these things comes down to the question of intent versus interpretation you know i just think the inter the inevitable interpretation of that spread is so problematic that whether the photographer actually intended it to be racist or not is almost besides the point the idea that you'd represent it in a kind of facsimile edition without at the very least giving kind of context to it um, you know, it just seems to me either, I mean, basically the, the two conclusions you can either draw from that is that Parr is kind of oblivious to race or, or equally that he didn't really look at the book before he lent his name to it um, or that he, he kind of doesn't see a problem. I mean, you know, he picked up on it and doesn't see a problem with it. I'm not sure that you can really come out of it with any other kind of conclusions. And again, you know, a bit like some of the other examples we've talked about, I think for me what it really reflects is that you know uh, it's again a tip of an iceberg thing in the sense that photography much more broadly is still very and I, i'm totally acknowledged that i'm part of the problem here um it's very kind of white male middle class very undiverse you know magnum is very for example is very unrepresentative of um the world at large because it is largely white men uh but actually you could say it's very representative of what photography is still like which is white and male so um yeah i mean i think it's i think a lot of the responses um from par you know were fairly unconvincing i don't think he really handled the whole thing well at all including um you know his, his response to the initial criticisms um yeah 
do you think it's acceptable that this work could be recontextualized? Could you pre- represent this work and say there are deeply problematic images in and, and spreads in this book? We need to talk about them. Is that an acceptable way to deal with it, or do you think Mar- you know Martin Parr's sort of belated call for it to be destroyed is 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 a better response? What's what's the best way out of this? Yeah, it's a really good question, and I mean, it's in a way, it's a question that people have been arguing over, you know probably for centuries but certainly for at least since the early 20th century about this question of uh, you know how much you can take problematic work contextualize it and it can still play a play a role it can still have a function I mean it also relates this kind of this idea of the death of the author and the question again of you know how important an author's intentions and also actually the author's personality and and life is to the work you know that they've made and I, I you know I'm very hesitant to offer a definitive answer to that because on the one hand you know I totally feel that people um you know people who who produce kind of problematic or exploitative work um and again the example of Salvin's project is a good one uh, that Tom mentioned shouldn't be promoted essentially um but at the same time often these works have things we can learn from them i mean i so i run a photography course i teach uh, the theory and ethics course um, uh, unit within the course amongst other things and actually you know i use a lot of problematic photography in that uh, unit with a lot of contextualization and warning and discussion with students about it because actually often problematic photography is the most useful when you're trying to actually kind of ha- teach students what not to do themselves it's quite hard in a way to teach students only using positive examples uh, and equally you know in terms of the field I teach documentary photography it has a very problematic history so you know so I mean I'm resistant to the idea of um, this kind of idea of erasure of problematic work you know there are plenty of examples in other fields of people who have problematic histories problematic views but actually still persist as kind of uh, as figures but with the context that you know we don't necessarily approve of this person or their opinions but they produced work that has something potentially to offer with context. It's important to say that when the uh, when I broke the past story for the art newspaper, uh, some of Buterini's family who who were still alive in in Italy were you know obviously incredibly upset about about the accusations of racism and, and pointed out that Gian Buterini himself was was a lifelong anti-fascist campaigner alongside being a photographer. And he and he wrote in his original um, introduction to the book that he was interested in polemic combinations and he w- he would use photography to make points about how he saw the world essentially. And it, it, when I was trying to 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 get people to essentially engage in this subject, I found a lot of people, you know, a lot of senior figures in photography actually thought Parr had been treated pretty badly and actually thought that the book was uh, open to interpretation. And and there, there could be a debate about that, but they're actually fairly unwilling to stick their head above a parapet. One person that did speak out is a photographer called Damien Borgia, um, a Jewish photographer from London. And he said, you know, everyone is just assuming that this is a racist book. Whereas it, from, from my point of view, it is um, very possible that the photographer was trying to display that black people are treated like animals and are disproportionately incarcerated, which... You know, from recent events like that is a live that is a live question that that can be represented through artwork. Um, so I, you know, I actually personally, and I'm willing to say, find it quite shocking that that Pa was willing to to destroy the book. Um, and I, I think a lot of people find that uh, that sort of, uh, statement to be to be problematic. In but itself. I suppose one of the one of the interesting aspects about this is is it possible to present that kind of imagery now without having that context explained in the sense that, yes, if Jan Buterini was a lifelong anti-fascist campaigner, you know, to what extent does it need to be spelt out that, that this was an anti-racist combination? And how do you do that and still pay tribute to the work? I mean, mm. I think it calls up all sorts of troubling aspects about not just the work, but also the interpretation of the work. Right. So but you can see completely why 
Mercedes Baptiste Halliday saw those images and find it, found it immensely troubling that a major photographer was promoting this book because it, you know, the first thing you see when you see that I've seen that spread, it looks like a terribly racist, offensive spread. So, if you know, to what extent do we always need a context? I suppose, Lewis, do you want to address this? You know, can you present that image again with a context and explain it? And can you ever leave an uh, a spread like that open to interpretation, given the history of race relations over the last many centuries? I mean, one of the things about photography as a medium is, you know, it's almost always open to interpretation. However much you contextualise it, there's always an element of uh, people basically interpreting images to mean things that perhaps the author didn't intend. But I mean, I think here, you know, that that's just a caveat. I don't think that's the case here. I think, you know, I mean, you basically, to be completely blunt, you know, this trope of uh, comparing black people to gorillas has such a long history. I mean, you know, it goes back to, uh, you know, eugenics and it goes back to kind of social Darwinism that you know whether or not the photographer intended that i think in a way um he was remiss not to realize it would be read like that either in the 1960s or in the future and i think in the end that's a big part of our responsibility as photographers and it's a very difficult responsibility and i know i know from my own experience it's very hard to get right and you don't always get it right is to anticipate these different readings in advance you know, failing that, where you have historic works that's that's problematic. I mean, it's very difficult to generalise about how much context different work needs. You know, I mean, if you take uh, maybe a very different example, like, you know, say, uh, say totalitarian art, say art from Nazi Germany or Stalinist Russia. I mean, you know, I think that kind of artwork, to understand it properly, needs a lot of contextualisation. When you see it presented seriously it is given that and when it doesn't have that it there's a very strong danger that it reverts back to its original purpose as, as kind of propaganda for an ideology that most people wouldn't agree with so i mean i think basically in this case this image its default kind of resting state is to reinforce a very well-worn racist trope and unless it's very heavily contextualized it will almost always default back to that meaning Tom, you write about photography very broadly, as Lewis does, and and you are constantly, no doubt, writing about morally tricky situations. Yeah, but I think that's a, that's a strength of the medium. That's part of the reason why I'm so fascinated by photography. It's it's a mobile medium which allows people to access corners of the world that otherwise they wouldn't be seen at all. We would never get any sort of insight into these communities and these places. I mean, you know, with Don McCullen's show at the Tate, I found that incredibly moving and powerful. But he's gone to, to war zones, you know, all over the world and, and taking pictures of people, you know, in the most uh, tragic, you know, horrendous, you know, unimaginably awful moments of their lives. And they're, you know, they're being sold now for lots of money and they're they're being celebrated in, in art galleries. You don't want to put an end to that. You don't want to limit someone who is willing to to do that dangerous work, but you do. There needs to be a a conversation in photography, which is reflective of the broader cultural conversations that we're having in the world, in politics. The fusing of those two things needs to happen in some way. I'm really unsure how it's going to turn out. I I I can't predict what's going to happen. Okay, well, it's it's an enormous debate, and I'm sure we'll be returning to it. But for the moment, Tom and Lewis, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Ben. Thanks very much. You can read more of Tom's writings on this subject at theartnewspaper.com and Lewis's thoughts at dysphotic.com. That's D-I-S-P-H-O-T-I-C.com. And finally, it's time for the work of the week. 
The artist Tavares Strachan has a show opening at Marion Goodman in London next week and he's chosen a seminal work of land art, Robert Smithson's Spiral Jetty, the 1970 work in which Smithson used over 6,000 tonnes of basalt rocks and earth to form a spiral 1,500 feet long and 15 feet wide that winds from the northeastern shore of the Great Salt Lake in Utah in the US. You can see an image of the work at theartnewspaper.com, click on the podcast link and look for this episode. Tavares, tell me about why you've chosen Spiral Jetty by Robert Smithson. I think for the most part, whenever you ask someone in the arts if they've seen Spiral Jetty, the answer generally is yes. And then you dig a little bit and then you realize that, in fact, when they say they've seen it, what they mean is they've seen a photo of it. And it, it raises all kinds of questions that are truly fundamental about the nature of of the politics of seeing. That's really interesting. So obviously that begs the inevitable question. Have you made the pilgrimage to Utah to see it? I would love to. The, the time, All of the times that I've uh, wanted to see it, it's been underwater. So I haven't seen it. Uh, I've watched film and I've, like most people, seen the the photo, photo documentation. Yeah. And that and Smithson's inc- film that you can see as well, which is so inc- incredibly atmospheric in its own way. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's a it's kind of a masterpiece, in the sense that it is happening in 1970. Fifteen feet by fifteen hundred feet, the Great Salt Lake. There's a a kind of moment. There are these beautiful moments of entropy. There are these moments of visibility and invisibility that resonate deeply with me. And actually, there's a kind of really nice relationship to thinking about a site, the idea of a site and a non-site, a place and a non-place, in relation to all of the, the kind of political unrest that's happening right now in the world. Can you explain a bit more about that? Because that's intriguing. Well, if you think of the... If you think of the black body as a kind of of non-site, then it has this really kind of fundamental and dramatic relationship between this this object that comes in and out of visibility and in and out of focus. And I think Smithson's very much referencing and thinking about the kind of the fragility of life in and of itself. And I think if you think about the the kind of diasporic body in the new world, it's it's a, a kind of potent parallel to think of this these bodies that come in and out of focus and in and out of visibility. Um and are are fundamentally difficult for the West to process and understand. But it also has a a fundamental connection to that landscape and the people who occupied that landscape before in the sense that he was thinking about ancient forms spiral forms that were found in the landscape by indigenous peoples right as well so so in a way you know he re- he was reaching back to bodies across history to a certain degree yeah i think that's why it's a, a kind of revolutionary work and i think it, it also it 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 really was one of the early stages of getting contemporary artists to think about working outside of of a kind of political or economic system and, and developed and invented these kind of systems that have a, a new kind of currency, which becomes fundamental to the, to the survival of the spirit of the artist. Yeah, the whole idea of entropy, this idea that it existed to not exist as well, it seems to me was completely radical. In this, and, and indeed, within two years, it had disappeared and then stayed disappeared for 30 years. So it's sort of this very well documented, but also invisible artwork. Is that something that also appeals, the way that time has its effect on it in that sense? Well, yeah, I mean, I think I think if you if you imagine the, the kind of the brief history of what we would call contemporary art, um maybe that timeline 40 50 years ago there was no such thing as a black artist right that just wasn't a thing um and so this shift from visibility and invisibility i think is is something that anyone who's an artist um and is from any kind of diasporic 
region understands very deeply and very profoundly. So the, the, the visibility, invisibility coming in and out of focus um, is a kind of an ode to a kind of infinite, an infinite game that I think Smithson's playing, right? And also, I mean, Smithson was deeply, I mean, he shared so many of your concerns about that, those connections between science and 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 art or broader culture right i mean he was a he was as much a scientific thinker as he was as a, a visual artist yeah and i also think if you if you think about this work in the context of 1970 and you think about what's going on in the world and you think about what's going on in america um you'd believe that we're actually in 1970 right now you mean in terms of civil rights actions the the protests that were ongoing then and 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 seem utterly resurrected right now yeah because i think that was i mean that was a way of making space right trying to create space where it wasn't wasn't any and i think that's a lot of what the the earthwork project is about right it's about trying to find room when there is not much creating a new kind of space a new kind of place and a new kind of location talking about new kinds of location I'm inevitably going to think about this work in which you moved this enormous ice block from the Arctic in reference to Matthew Henson, this polar explorer that has largely been forgotten, like so many of the, the people that you, you reference in your work. And inevitably, it, to me, that feels like a very Smithson kind of project. Was Smithson on your mind when you actually mm-hmm. made that work? Um, I think I think Smithson's a deeply uh, a kind of important artist for almost every artist I think alive today, just because like I said, so much about creative practice has to do with is creating space. And, you know, Smithson was thinking about this idea very early, very early on. Um, and I think what, what was potent about thinking about Smithson was um, this idea of being able to um, adapt and change the conversation. And, 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 you know, when Smithson was doing it, maybe it wasn't the most important thing at the time, but it's over time evolving itself to become one of the more significant works of of the 21st century. And I think that's really that's really phenomenal um, that he's taken nothing and made something out of it, like literally. Well, Tavares, thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Tavares Strachan's exhibition In Plain Sight is at the Marion Goodman Gallery in London from the 8th of September until the 24th of October. And you can find out more about the Spiral Jetty at the DIA Foundation's website. That's D-I-A-A-R-T dot org, diaart.org. And that's it for this week. Do subscribe to The Art Newspaper at theartnewspaper.com. Click on the subscribe link at the top left of the page and you'll find a range of subscriptions. And please subscribe to this podcast and a brush with if you haven't already and give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. You can also find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The producers of The Week in Art are Julia Mahouska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. And David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks to Eric, Tom and Lewis and Tavares and thank you for listening. See you next week. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.